we have physical products, we also have software, we have services, we have B2B, we have B2C. We really need to think about what kind of real workforce do I have and what's the purpose of what specific site and space to support that. And so that, I think, will trigger many different things, which also we hope we can share with some of the other companies. Welcome to the CIO Exchange podcast. I'm Edean Porter de Leon. This is another special episode recorded via conference call while many offices remained unopened and some shelter-in-place orders are still in effect. Many people who once used an office building to find collaboration and leverage corporate resources have had to find those things elsewhere. This has left a permanent imprint on workforce habits, individual skills, and company culture, one that has already changed the way we fundamentally think about how we work. In the wake of this massive shift, we ask the question, what is the office for? Will the new way of working be purely about choice? And how will organizations enable this from a technology and leadership perspective? In this episode, I speak with Logitech's CIO, Massimo Rapparini, who shares how his company made the shift to remote workforce, and more importantly, how they are rethinking their approach to what it means to be on a team while tackling the tough challenges of safely bringing people back into the office. So Massimo, you as a CIO and Logitech in general have a unique story when it comes to enabling people to work remotely. It's not just you have the right technology, but there's also a cultural component. There's also a vision component too as well. Could you talk about how you saw the transition for people to work remotely and what was that specific story, your company, and how are you uniquely positioned, not just from a technology perspective, which I think everyone kind of feels that that's a key strength, but what was it also from a cultural and vision and leadership perspective? What was that like? Sure, yeah, thanks for the question. I think you look at Logitech, like you said, obviously, traditionally, we've been a very distributed and collaborative organization where we've implemented things like video collaboration pretty much as our DNA within our four walls, even before the pandemic. And so from a technology shift for us, it wasn't such a big deal. We used to have something like 30,000 video calls a month on average for our employee population, which is about you know 3,500 people. That was something that was really pretty much in our bread and butter. But I think what happened is when we actually transitioned because of the crisis, we really invoked a lot of the other things from a cultural and uh, organization structure that we have in place, which is really about how do we continuously find ways to, for instance, design products, build products, get them out to different markets, cover different geographies across the world, being respectful of the things that are unique in each of these markets. But the fact that we had that kind of network and, and infrastructure already in place, I think made it really easy for us to make that transition, relatively easy, so to speak coupled with, again, the infrastructural technology that was underlying what's already the way that our organization runs. And so for me, you know, as a CEO, it was, I think, for sure, a transition to understand are there new tools, are there new things that we need to provide such that people can be even more effective when we introduce working remotely. But realistically, the fact that we had already a, a pretty global culture, we had processes that were on purpose designed to be somewhat distributed and accessible across the world made it somewhat less uh, of a challenge than potentially for someone mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I imagine there was definitely some ease there, but was there anything that was surprising? I know a lot of individuals that I've spoken to, CIOs, CEOs, found that, yes, there were some workflows, some processes that were just seamless, working in the same way, were leveraging the same tools as anyone might be, especially field people. There might be sales or there might be field engineers that are always out there. They're working exactly the same as they worked before. But then yeah. there's also things that surprise them. There are things like, hey, maybe there's, you know, there's security sure. things that were like people used to just be in the knock or they used to be in certain places physically that, yeah. well, we can't access that now. What were some of the unique challenges and problems that you got to solve in this particular instance? And, and, and maybe even how did that make the culture of distributed work stronger at your company? 
I think there were both, let's say, external type of factors as well as internal, right? Externally, for sure, we saw shifts in terms of how to deal with a logistics world that's completely different and impaired, a manufacturing operation that really needs to rely on other places than some of the maybe locations where previously we were able to rely on, but also just consumer behavior, right? Seeing customers more and more flock to our online presence and e-commerce platforms versus previously just going through big retailers and kind of resellers and channels that were traditionally our biggest volume, right? And so I think those factors and then internally, the fact that we obviously had a population that was pretty used to actually work remotely, or all of a sudden was doing this really every day, right? And so from that point of view, I think we really had to shift in terms of there's something from a scale, there's something from an infrastructure, and there's something from a resilience that we really need to introduce that's different. And from an IT point of view, when it comes to the external factors, a lot of our work has been partnering with operations team, with some of the sales teams, some of the product teams to understand how do we pivot from, let's say, a traditional retail channel to something that's more online. How do we provide a better online experience? How do we provide more up-to-date information? How do we support a, an increase in terms of customer contacts that are all coming through online channels? Exactly, exactly. Because that um, digital experience you know, is like the only experience that many people could have for you, especially right. before the lockdown <laughs> was lifted in a lot of those retail yeah. locations we were talking about. So you only have digital now. And so was there a transformation or rethinking of the way that you would improve that customer experience, say improve, let's say, yeah. an application modernization evolution yeah. that took place? What was that like? Yeah. I think it's it's been interesting because it helped us really accelerate our thinking about digital business and, and digital platforms, although that's always been something that we felt is where we had to go. I think this has helped us really kind of make this kind of a, a burning topic, something that really needs to happen now versus, okay, let's come up with a roadmap that helps us in three years. And I think for us to do that as an example, we really had to rethink the whole, how do you actually allow people to track their orders or cancel orders if they're doing these online? Whereas you would think it's traditionally something that pretty much every online business has these days. But for us, it wasn't really kind of our second nature type of thing that we were typically doing. And so providing a, a journey, let's say online, whether it's your browsing for products, you're purchasing, and then you want to have a good post-sales experience and trying to really automate that journey in ways that is much more kind of what people are used to when you go to Amazon or these other Yeah, because it's one of those things you don't think about that full digital journey until the light is shown. And and the light was really shown on a lot of things. And one of those is that what is our customer digital experience, that full experience? And does it scale? And how can we support that? And now that the way that people interact with us and the view, the brand of the company now is completely reliant on this digital experience, these digital touches. And is that positive? What's the state of that, right? Was there any moments at which you were like, this is daunting, but we've, yes. you know, but we've got the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think the answer is yes. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's, but that's but a... in particular, when we saw, for instance, you know, we, like I said, our, our online channels, direct to consumer has always been a small part of our business. But when we actually started to go 800, 900% increase in volume, just in terms of capacity, in the first few months or when the shutdowns of the big retailers happened, and I think that's where really everybody woke up and said, whoa, hold on, what's going on here? How do we actually handle that? Yeah. And I think it also triggers something broader than just purely, okay, let's just kind of boost my .com page, but really think about what that journey enablement needs to be. Think about even products, right? How do we actually make the products smarter such that they can actually allow through the intelligence our customers to connect more easily with the products, to turn on features, to diagnose problems, you know, kind of really making things much more intelligent than potentially we're doing before, where you can rely on things like Best Buy agent that can help you figure out how to make your product work. It's interesting. I mean, that fascinates me that adding more intelligence into the product itself to change that user experience. And it's funny because I'm coming up with an analogy from CIO at a university where there was a, a series of what they call hacks 
where people didn't need a digital experience for students because there was always like a teacher's assistant there and there was some paper shuffling. You could always just, oh, let me write yourself down and then hand it to somebody and put it in a basket. Even in technology, there are hacks where people had a technology hurdle and they would maybe call this customer or they would jiggle the handle, they would do something else or update stuff. You don't have that available when you can't physically have someone do something or there's not the resources available because of the lockdown. It sounds like there's that rethinking of, well, how does that interaction between the device and the user That's need right. to change in order to fill that gap? Yeah, it's a great example. Yeah, and again, you know, when, when things, when there are workarounds, I think people are traditionally, from that point of view, mentally lazy and assume that there's a way to kind of make it work. You don't need to kind of push yourself to find a much better and maybe much more automated way. Mm-hmm. I think we found it both in ways where simple things where you can provide an easy start kind of online touch point that allows somebody to quickly scan a code and immediately whether it's their blue microphone, it's their Jaybird earbud, will actually turn on some features, allow them to configure the product to work for them, right? So I think there's small things like that, that like you said, instead of, okay, well, I know how to actually do the equalizer on my headbutt, so I'm, I'm going to kind of look somebody up and call them. Now you can actually do that directly yourself. And I think it goes back to, let's also empower customers to be much more self-sufficient, right? Versus having to rely on something that they can't control themselves. Yeah. I was just thinking about like gain staging, which is really sort of a, <laughs> that's a heady, a heady audio word. So those listening to or who haven't been sound engineers don't do that. But let me, if I have a headset, I want to move this volume from this app to this volume from my that's system, right. to this volume from my device. If you can create the intelligence to be able to say, Hey, like just for volume control, can there be like that's consistency right. across that user experience would be really helpful too. So now that we're at the point where we've got some decent processes, some decent scalability, some a cultural sort of, I wouldn't say normalcy, but momentum is probably a better word for this distributed yep. workforce. The question now is with a lot of municipalities, a lot of states, countries starting to say, let's now lift some restrictions. Yep. And I've had some great conversations with CIOs who are like, we had seamless workflows now when people went out. Okay, now we have to bring them back. <laughs> there's no vaccine. There's no super yeah. effective treatment. And now there's this whole host of problems, of course, which 20,000 vendors will say that they can solve for you instantaneously of out of the box. Of you know, it happens automatically <laughs> in, right. in a single pane of glass. It's always a single pane of glass. And, <laughs> and then how do you start to approach? Because when you talk about daunting, that's yeah. been daunting to many CEOs, CIOs, CEOs, yeah. leadership teams. Before we get too deep in it, what was that first thought when you had that first meeting or that first conversation? Okay, yeah. how do we bring people back? Oh, that's a great question. And obviously, like many other companies have set up a crisis team that really looks at, okay, how do we respond? And now we make sure that our employees are both safe. And at the same time, we try to continue our business operations. One of the things that that crisis team have put together very quickly, even before this reopening kind of wave started, is to think about what we call playbooks that allow each of our sites to think about what is the right way to allow that reopening, right? So what's some of the phasing? What are some of the protections you want to have in place? What's some of the equipment we need to provide? But that's, I think, at a, at a pretty tactical level, something that is not really rocket science. And like mm-hmm. I said, maybe there's lots of vendors with solutions, but it's something you can, I think, pretty quickly, if you have a decent kind of crisis infrastructure, able to deal with. I think the larger question is truly, if you look at beyond the, okay, just quickly try to reopen things, what is the true shift in terms of, I'm also in charge, for instance, of our, of our workplace services and our uh, global sites and real estate. You know, what's really the shift in terms of, what's the purpose of an office? If we're no longer, yeah, exactly. if we're assuming, exactly. you know, lots of people are going to be working remotely. 
if I don't no longer need to have one-to-one, you know, number of seats and, and desks for as many employees as I have, is it truly for people just to sit behind their desk or is it for doing collaborative project work? Is it for designing products only? Is it for engineering labs? Or is it just for kind of socializing, be able to connect with people once in a while, right? So rethinking that and the implication of, so what is, you know, what kind of offices do we need? It's not just physically the space, but also the tools that go with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm a big fan of Seth Godin, who's one of the thought mm-hmm. leaders of our time. And he always proposes a question. He's like, what is it for? And who is it for? So that fascinates me because that's one of the first times I've heard the question being asked. Many people are sort of rethinking the office, but really that's the question you need to ask. What is the yep. office for? And exactly. who is it yep. for? And then once you ask those questions, then you start to think of, okay, what's that next step? And, and how do I then not just enable a remote or enable an in-office workforce? How do I rethink the way that we have a company and we have employees and how they work together and how they execute and an office is that portfolio? Exactly. exactly. And it has implications beyond just purely, again, like I said, the space. Think about hiring practices, right? And where do you typically, as a strategy, look for talent and what kind of talent and what's your location strategy? Where is the all of a sudden you can actually step back and think differently about it. And, and actually, not just for your own company or business, you know, what are maybe some of the benefits? You have a larger pool of talent to tap into, but equally potentially providing more fair opportunities across different geographies that you were doing before, right? Instead of let's all hire in the Silicon Valley and let's make people super happy <laughs> for the greatest jobs in the world. We'll just going to Stanford. Actually, and pick maybe a go, people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So, so. So I think um, I, I think that's very important implication is something that for sure we're getting, we're starting to look at and figuring out as it uh, for instance impacts more of our thinking, including for instance around our hiring. But also back to the office, if you consider th- different types of jobs, and I was talking to a number of CEOs yesterday, and when you're let's say in software development and such, for sure this is not news, right? You could have probably and we've heard the Googles and the Facebooks announced that hey, you wouldn't go to permanent working remote yep. and so on. When you're in that kind of space, uh, to some extent, you may be more kind of one-size-fits-all type of jobs, to some extent easier. But space we're in, we're multi-category, multi-brand. We have physical products. We also have software. We have services. We have B2B. We have B2C. We really need to think about what kind of real workforce do I have and what's the purpose of what specific site and space to support that. And so that, I think, will trigger many different things, which also we hope we can share with some of the other companies. Right? What have we learned? What are some technology we've used? But how can others leverage it within their context as well? And I like that sort of portfolio and strategy approach because part of that equation, too, is about choice. And there's some users that absolutely love that seamless work from home experience. And there's some users yeah. that are just like, when can I go back? <laughs> That's right. When can I get back? <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's plenty of those for sure. And so I think choice is a good lens to look at, well, how do you then enable choice? And maybe that's not mm-hmm. just work 2.0. It is really like, well, how do you enable work choice? And how do you provide that in office, out office, one day a week, two days a week, zero days a week, yeah. three months on, three yeah. months off kind of experience? Yeah. So how do you enable that choice? Or what is sort of yeah. your vision or, or strategy in approaching that? I think there's a couple of things that we're at least assuming will, will work for us. So one is technology for sure as an enabler for something that is potentially less, let's say, uh, directive than it used to be before, right? So you can actually turn the technology around such that it can become much more of a flexible tool that can be applied in different ways, right? So whether it's the, how do I video collaborate remotely, or whether it's how do I actually allow people to physically, let's say, share desk space or share different spaces because the technology is easily swappable. I think there's lots of pieces of that that really can create that kind of choice point. 
I think the second thing is truly also considering how do we actually look at the talent and, and the skills and the resources that we have in ways that they can be either much more dynamically interchanged, that they can be used as a way to educate and give more opportunities and growth for people to adapt. And at the same time, allow us to be able to be more flexible in terms of some of the projects and the products that we deliver. So I think it's both the people and the tools and technology there that can actually bring together a much better way of providing the choice that you mentioned. Yeah. And I think there's so much emphasis now on employee experience and customer experience and how those two interlock. And I think it's a great conversation yeah. that's finally being had at scale and in part of the mainstream because yeah. it was there, but now yeah. it's front and center. It's almost becoming table stakes at a certain point where it's like, okay, this is how business is done. And so when you're looking at it through that customer experience, employee experience lens, what are the ways in which you feel like, okay, here's some easy ways, whether it's remote desktops, VDI, all video conferencing, the easy ways, where do you think the real challenges are? And where do you think those conversations with CIOs and the board or executive staff really need to happen? Where do you think it's missing? There's lots of headlines. What do you think is not in the headlines that really needs to be addressed in order to really make something like that real? I think one thing that is kind of converging as this crisis has happened and just generally what's going on in the world, the trend that was already happening in terms of the generational shift. First, you have Gen Z and millennials that are becoming the largest cohort of people in the workforce. And that was already driving a different expectation when it comes to, for instance, employment or the work that people are willing to do. There is really much more about being engaged, being authentic, feeling that they have actually something to contribute to something that matters to them. Exactly. I think if you combine that with the fact that with the shift, for instance, with the, the crisis, was that a lot of the discussion and even talked to CEOs yesterday as an example was about productivity, right? How yep. do we ensure we don't lose productivity? I need to measure, is it the number of software code lines? Is it something else? And how do we actually <laughs> measure that? And, and realistically- So that reminds me um, of K-Locks back in the IBM days. Yeah, exactly. So I'm probably dating myself. <laughs> but, but realistically, what's kind of being missed is things about innovation and creativity, right? Because- that's, I think, if you try to compare apples to apples, pre-COVID-19 situation versus today, other shift is about, let's make sure we're still very productive, but are we still enabling creativity and innovation? And I think when it comes to employee experience, that's truly, I think, one aspect that we need to really think about. If we're going to go into this world where, yeah, people are going to be working remotely sometimes, sometimes in the, in the office, the different disrupting the way you collaborate. And how do you make sure you don't drop on the floor the whole aspect of are we still innovating? How are we being creative? Instead yeah. of just, okay, I churned out a bunch of stuff. You can look at my output, but how well is it really working? And uh, how are we not burning out our employees? Absolutely. Because I think that when you're talking about, because you might see me, you brought up a really good point about now you have different choice for talent. You have different ways in which yep. to imagine that distributed workforce. And then you also have a totally different ways to start to look at how are you going to achieve what you want to achieve? And yep. part of that is, choice. Of course, you want to work in office, you want to work remotely. There's other things now that you look at to say, how do we get that same passion and energy and collaboration out of that same workforce? It's leadership. Yes. It's culture. Yes. It's technology. Yes. It's location. And all of that now is being rethought. Like, yes, you just said at the top, there's a customer digital journey that's happening now. What does that employee journey really look like? What does that employee choice look like? And then tackling that and you almost take care of the customer experience problem if you have that employee experience. Give me your perspective on how you look at that. The two go hand in hand for sure. And I think try to embrace is how do we make sure, okay, support isn't just my responsibility or my team's customer support and a bunch of call agents' responsibility, but all of us as employees at Logitech can really be advocates for our customers and support them in that way. I think you only really want to become an advocate for others if you feel passionate about the company you're advocating for as well as kind of the business that you represent. And so I think that's something that really goes back to, that's great, an employee experience that's genuine. 
we have our values and core values we believe in that we want to be reflected in how people operate. And then really gets reflected in the experience that you get if you interact with me as a customer logistic, right? And I think that whole cycle is obviously really the way we want to design it. I'm not saying that's where we are today, but I think that's really where we want to go. It's a journey. Yeah, it's a journey. (laughs) I know you've got your work cut out for you. And one of the great (laughs) things about being a CIO, and one CIO, I like to steal this this phrase from him because he likes to say the CIO sits at the corner of mayhem and chaos. And he said he loves it. It's wonderful. But another CIO might say, this is not a job for the faint of heart. You really have to love this. So now that you're in this, you're at the crossroads of mayhem and chaos. Where do you see this evolving to? Do you see an issue with sustainability of remote workforce in a way that say, okay, this is not sustainable. People need to have this employee experience evolve. Where does that need to go next? And how do companies, how do other CIOs get to that next step where they can evolve that employee experience? Where do you think it's breaking down right now, actually, first? I think for sure these kind of questions are huge at this time of kind of the crisis and kind of where the world is at today. And at the same time, I think it's a huge opportunity as well that likely, although yes, CIO and being at the center of chaos and NAM is probably, <laughs> you know, powerful course. I think this is at a slightly different scale than we potentially will experience in our lifetime, right? And yeah. So I think you, you definitely need to think about it in that context. And also then use the opportunity to call out the things that are a great opportunity for us to, okay, so let's drive a different way of designing our offices. Let's drive a different way of allowing people to collaborate, work in different places and hiring. And at the same time, figure out how technology can then really be leveraged to become much more core to all of these pieces, right? And instead of just a kind of tangential support piece. I think the opportunity as a leader is truly more impactful, I guess, than in the past. And as an example, recently talked about how much we really want to focus on sustainability. You know, obviously we create yes. over 10 million widgets every month that get shipped across the world. And a lot of them have plastic and really important carbon footprint impact on the world. And, you know, one of the things that we really want to drive is how do we do that better? Right? How do we yeah. use different materials? How do we promote recycle and, and that kind of stuff? Realistically, this change in what's going on is also a great opportunity to rethink how do you drive things like sustainability if you really care about that or you know, even more importantly, the last few weeks, uh, equality. Right? How can you take this opportunity to elevate the impact that your business can have on the world? And as a CEO, as a leader, that's something you have a huge opportunity to impact. You no, know, it's great. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because right now there's momentum for certain yeah. things like there was that didn't exist before. There were things, well, maybe next quarter, maybe next fiscal year. <laughs> that's the story of your life, I'm sure. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. For yeah. certain, for some things, it's absolutely okay. Here's the check. But for some things it is, it's like, well, maybe not okay. this quarter. Yes. Now, what are you seeing some of those? I think probably yeah. a, a great place to wrap up the conversation is where do you really see those big momentum shifts happening yeah. when you're talking to the board or executive staff or lines of yeah. business? And how are you taking advantage of those. I think for sure, same kind of realization I had also when all of this started to unfold was, wow, this is actually a great opportunity for people to really be listening at a different level and actually being much more engaged than maybe in the past. So I think a couple of areas we're seeing, one is just the whole theme of resilience, right? So we've equally, like every other company in the world, try to optimize the cost out of everything, right? And try to be as efficient and as kind of lean and lean as, as possible. And really that brings a lot of risk when it comes to shock to the system, like we saw with the Corona crisis, right? So how do we rethink operations and not just from, okay, well, you know, where do I have my factory and how many people do I hire? Truly from a systems interconnectivity and integration, how do you build some resilience in the system? And that's something that typically, unless there's been a cyber incident, it, most people are like, okay, well, it's like an insurance. Yeah, we'll deal with it if the issue is really urgent. Otherwise, we'll postpone the investing in that stuff. Exactly. And that, I think, is a huge opportunity everybody should really think about. The other one, talent, for sure. It's also a great opportunity to reconsider and instead of being kind of stuck in the old ways of, well, these roles will always go over here. For this type of talent, we actually tap into these resources, really broaden that much bigger. And again, not only for yourself, but I think for the communities around you, provide a much better opportunity. 
And I think the third piece is truly how do we actually use the technology to bring people to drive together much better to drive innovation and really at the same time figure out that that innovation also serves other purposes. Like if you feel very strongly about the environment, about sustainability, there's no better time than now right, to rethink about how you drive innovation that includes uh, sustainability from the start. Excellent. And so I think that's a really good point to package in the last point we'd like to end on, which is how do you then go to board next? So other CIOs listening to this and they're like, great, I think these are really wonderful initiatives. How do you make the argument to the board from a top line and bottom line perspective for the value of this using the momentum we currently have? It's interesting. Our CEO, Bracken, wrote a column at the start of this whole crisis. And one of the things he reflected on was the fact that if you take a car racing context, typically you see people when they actually get into a turn, which is like a challenge, they brake first, but then they accelerate when they're kind of midway through the turn, right? Then he used that to say, well, you should have that same mentality if you look at the crisis this way. And for sure, try to manage the downward risk try to understand what the potential exposures are, but as quickly as possible, play offense, right? And think about what is this opportunity to have today? What are changes or goals that maybe in the past were really hard to get support for attention? Because one thing that is always true is that inertia typically wins when you're in a context of trying to move things. It's really hard to fight inertia. And in this case, I think inertia is a little bit on their back foot. That I think would be a huge piece of advice, which is truly be, look at this as a huge moment in time where you can make that change. Now, when it comes to top line, bottom line, and how do you really, okay, translate it to dollars? And, you know, one of the things that for sure I've adopted is trying to find the allies in in the company that are really yearning for something that's potentially been always some of the kind of orphan stepchild. And now if you take things like digital business or e-commerce, no better time now than really make the argument for really upscaling that whole infrastructure. So I partnered closely with my CMO and kind of the people that are really big sponsors and stakeholders that are asking for those type of capabilities and have them make the case with you and for you. Creating these partnerships and trying to build this collaboration, I think is also really important to, to try and make that case. Excellent. Now, well, Massimo, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you joining the CIO Exchange podcast. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you for listening to the CIO Exchange podcast. For more conversations with technology leaders from around the world, consider subscribing to this podcast. And to get video perspectives and deep research, visit vmware.com slash CIO.